Since its inception in the aftermath of World War II, the United Nations has been a pivotal force conducting humanitarian operations worldwide, aiming to ease the suffering of civilians caught up in conflict or disaster. Through its agencies, the UN provides emergency relief and healthcare services and offers protection to those trapped in war zones. In doing so, sometimes the mission itself comes under threat case in point is Israel's war on Gaza. More than nine weeks into Israel's military offensive, UN officials have warned that the conditions for staff to deliver humanitarian aid are increasingly precarious. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees estimates Israeli attacks and evacuation orders have forcibly displaced 85% of the population. Many of them, 1.3 million, are sheltering in UN facilities, more than four times their normal capacity. And Israel frequently targets those facilities, hampering their operational capabilities. The killing of humanitarian workers adds another layer of complexity to the crisis. It begs the question, can the United Nations overcome these challenges to fulfill its mission in Gaza? For some crucial insight on this, Martin Griffiths, the UN Under-Secretary-General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, talks to Al Jazeera. Martin Griffiths, the UN Under-Secretary-General for Humanitarian Affairs, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. You've had a long career with the United Nations. Your job is to coordinate all the UN's humanitarian work, all the UN agencies that are operating in the field. Mm. With your experience, have you seen something as bad as Gaza? No, I've had 50 years, James, 50 years of dealing with conflict, and I started in 1972. Uh, with um, the Khmer Rouge, I was in the Indochina War, remember, those days? And that was bad. That was bad. You remember the killing fields? Mm. Um, but Gaza somehow is worse, not necessarily in the amount of suffering each individual has, but in the lack of prospects. Because for Gaza uniquely uh, does not allow people to flee. And we know that Sudan has had, what, two million people left Sudan for safety elsewhere. Not a great story for them, but alive. Um, but the problem for Gaza is that for so many people in Gaza, the future is completely obscure. So in some ways, Gaza is uniquely awful. And that's before you start talking about the suffering, the numbers, the, the betrayal of the health system and so on. Gaza is special, and it's special in a bad way. You've already said it's no longer possible to say there's a humanitarian operation in Gaza. Explain that. What I mean by that is that we had hoped that when the war moved south, we were in fact told that when the war moved south, that there would be a different approach to the military operations, slightly more targeted, perhaps. Precise and surgical are the cliches that are used, as you know. And we had a 10-point plan, which we presented to the world as to how we would respond to it. What's happened is that the assault on southern Gaza has been no less than the north. It's raging, of course, through Khan Yunus at the moment. It's threatening Rafah. 
the compression of the population is greater. We cannot uh, be sure of any of our points of operation to be safe through deconfliction, through this process, whereby you tell each side that this is a safe place for UN operations or humanitarian operations. We don't have that. So we operate on a form of humanitarian opportunism. It's not what is the characteristic of a normal humanitarian operation, which is dependability, reliability, repetition, you know, and the next one's coming, and a certain amount of safety, both for aid workers and for those who they serve. Those conditions don't exist in southern Gaza. And, they, and the fact that they don't means that the humanitarian operation, which can be improved, by the way, is a random one. There are trucks going into Rafah. They are unloaded with great difficulty and bravery from the people who have to come from where the war is down to, 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 to this, these spots. Aid does get to people from time to time. There is some aid going to some hospitals, but it is random, it is not dependable, and in my mind, that's not a humanitarian operation, because a humanitarian operation is a safety net for people in war. Given the scale of the destruction we've seen, the amount of homes that have been destroyed, is it fair to say Gaza is now completely unlivable? I think Gaza may become completely unlivable. Gaza is already a place where there is no guaranteed place of safety, which could be one criterion for livability. We still don't know where this will end. We worry, of course, about whether the compression of the population down south and south and south is going to have them burst out of the borders of Gaza into new problems, into Egypt. So we don't know. But what we do know is that the north of Gaza is barely livable. And if we see that replicated in the south, and I understand from the, what I read and what I'm told, is that Hamas, um, which the acts of which on October the 7th started this awful conflict through their appalling acts, is also very present in the south, always has been. In fact, in some senses, more than in the north. So we can assume that it is very difficult to eradicate a terrorist group like Hamas with precise surgical operations. It, mo it is more likely to be a mass military operation of the kind we see. That creates an environment, a landscape, which is unlivable in. But the worst aspect of it, I think, is that um, we've had many, many, many negotiations daily with the Israelis on all these matters. Um, is that people are asked to move to places which they are then defined as unsafe again, and they have to move again. Now, normally, in most conflicts that you and I know from around the world, you're asked to move to a place out of the conflict, to a place of greater safety. That's why people can't trust these, um, I think, probably well-meaning um, pieces of information to say, get out of the way of the fighting, which is a good thing in itself. It's a good thing. But not if it means that you go somewhere else and maybe you get bombed on the way and then when you get somewhere else, you have to go somewhere else further. Your, your boss, the Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, said people are being treated like human pinballs. 
Yes. The, the, the place that now Israel is saying to go to, um, or one of those designated safe areas, is a place called Al Mawasi, which is a desolate bit of land by the coast where there are no facilities whatsoever. Do you believe that is a safe zone? No. Do you unrecognize that? No, we don't. And we're very firm on this, and we have been from the outset. When there was a, dis a discussion about safe zones started in the Gazan context a couple of weeks ago, um, with quite a lot of pressure being put on the UN, for example, to recognize the safe zone suggestions from Israel and others. Um, now, the UN has a special history, as you know, on safe zones. We have lived through Srebrenica, mm -hmm. which was not a safe zone, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. The requirements of a safe zone are quite clear. It includes the need for guarantees of safety from all parties, it needs to be a place that people go to and leave voluntarily. It needs to be a place where humanitarian services are regularly and reliably provided. And Mamwarsi doesn't fit any of those requirements, as far as we're aware. And so we have had a continuing discussion with the Israeli authorities about what is a safe zone and what is a safe area. One of the worries that we have about Mawasi. Um, is that these very well-meaning and well-founded suggestions for a maritime corridor may draw people down to that beach area, which we don't think is safe, where there will be a collection of people who will be in harm's way. And so they will be drawn by the possibility of humanitarian aid. So the United Nations, the United Nations Secretary General, has been extremely clear, and we have pu published statements and signed statements by all the humanitarian agencies to say, we do not believe that the concept of safe zones exists in all possibility in Gaza. Yes, and places flying the UN flag, and I assume you've given the coordinates of those places we to have. the Israelis. We have. My understanding, more than 90 of those places have been hit in some ways by the Israelis. Um, isn't this Israel showing a willful disregard of the neutrality of the UN? Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, an appalling situation. We had our own, my own staff, who live mostly in one building in Gaza. That building was rocketed, which had just UN staff in it. The and they day. knew that was a building with UN yes, staff? Yes, it was, it was part of the deconfliction operation. And presumably, they must have felt that there were Hamas operatives nearby or underneath or ever. Um, so the process of deconfliction, and this is another reason why my 10-point plan is in tatters, is because we haven't been able to trust deconfliction. And on top of that, mm. you've had more than 130 staff working for the UN, most of them working for the UN agency that deals with Palestinians, UNRWA, who've been killed. Well, Israel says it's minimising civilian casualties and it's managed to kill more than 130 UN staff. That just doesn't make sense, their claims to be minimising casualties, does it? Well, you know, it's the most, as, as I know you've heard this before, but it's the most, it's the highest number of, of humanitarian staff, UN staff, killed in any conflict in the many, many years of the UN history. The other big pernicious pandemic, I think, of... Um, the lack of principle, is the targeting of health centres and health institutions and clinics and hospitals. It's, it's a breach of international humanitarian law. And 
Dr Tedros has spoken out very clearly about this, and I think he has said recently that only, what is it, 14 out of 36 hospitals operate, and that minimally, and that minimally. Um, now, look, it is also against humanitarian law to use the premises of a hospital or a school or anywhere protected by the law as a place for military operations. So if there are Hamas infesting parts of those hospitals or schools, then they are breaking humanitarian law. But then you have these principles of proportionality and, and so forth. And we haven't seen that happen. The numbers of dead in Gaza, children, of course, in particular, being the most tragic statistic, far outweigh the numbers killed in other conflicts of the day. Now, there's something, as the Secretary General said, there's something completely wrong, which is a nice way of putting it, about this. Yes, one can understand and indeed defend the notion that Israel has a right to respond to the terrible events of October the 7th. And I'm one of those who has seen the compilation videos of those terrible acts of those days. But it doesn't justify for a second the impact on the innocent civilians of Gaza. So do you think they're going to get pushed out of Gaza? I don't know. Because the Secretary-General, your boss, said in the Security Council, the situation at the moment creates increased pressure for mass displacement into Egypt. It and some are saying that was the... I mean, the Palestinian ambassador in the UN as well, in the same meeting, said that's Israel's plan, in his view. Well, I wish I knew. I wish I knew what the plan was. It's the absence of knowing what the plan is that also, by the way, in Gaza, as, in, uh, as elsewhere, makes humanitarian planning difficult. Because so they're not telling you what they're planning to do with Gaza after the war is no. over? No. I mean, you're one of the top UN officials. You're supposed to deal with the humanitarian situation. Neither Israel or the US is telling you what the, uh, what the plan is. No. What we're having with them, and it is a good thing, and it should be recognised, is daily negotiations with the Israelis, the US, Egypt, and my office, the UN. Daily negotiations which are well attended, which are serious, which are detailed, to try to improve, for example, the logistics of entry into Gaza. But they're not a fora for us to be told, this is what's going to happen at the end of the war, the whole question about the day after, the whole question about an administration of what will Gaza look like is something that is completely absent. What I'm struck by is not so much that I'm not told, I don't expect to be told, I expect to be there to react, but what the world should be hearing more of is what the civil society of the Palestinian people, who still exist as a people, not just in Gaza, but elsewhere, in their camps around the region, in the West Bank. What do they think? What is their answer to that basic question about how should Palestine be administered? Not to question the two-state solution, but to talk about the first step towards where, how to get there. And that's missing. We have very, very... Um, energetic and welcome diplomacy from the Arab region. They've been around 
the West, as you know, Washington a couple of days ago, talking about the needs of the Palestinian people. We've had excellent discussions here in the Doha Forum about that. One of the main points that the Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority made was, why aren't we asking the Palestinian people what they want to see? And of course, their ideas will be uh, confused in many ways. Their views about starting a political process will be overambitious, no doubt. Their voice, just as in Sudan, the civilian voice, the civil society, the civilian voice, the voice equally also, by the way, of Hamas and other organizations um, who've been involved in the Palestinian um, or um, universe, needs to be heard. We need them to be given the opportunity to, to tell us their views about the future. I'm a stranger. I get no vote in Palestine. But there are many who do, and they have strong views, much better informed than mine. And in the world, Gaza is perhaps overshadowing some of the other conflicts. For example, you mentioned it briefly earlier on, oh, uh, the situation in Sudan, where two rival generals continue their battle. How would you describe the situation there now? It's very, very bad. I think Sudan... It, it, is, it is one of the tragedies of Gaza or Sudan that Gaza has taken all our attention. I mean, do you remember Ukraine? There was a war going on there. Um, and I'm sure it's still going. Um, Sudan, I think in many ways, is a greater threat to international peace and security in a certain way. The difference between Sudan and Gaza is Gaza is a jail. Sudan people run out and indeed undermine the neighboring countries, as we know. But Sudan is falling apart. Um, the, our ability to reach people in Sudan, and once again, we're very underfunded, maybe 30% funded for Sudan. Our access is very difficult. ICRC has had a convoy which was attacked even after an agreement between those two generals for it to go through, and people killed on that convoy. Sudan is a place of broken promises. We put a lot of effort, as did the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, into a renewal of the Jeddah process, as you know, where we, OCHA, the United Nations, was going to manage negotiations on access between the parties, and I think it lasted, what, about a week before it ended. And political diplomacy on Sudan is completely absent. And that's just the beginning of the problem in Sudan, because its consequences, as you know, through Africa, its consequences to our sense of values are so catastrophic. A distinguished, actually he was a Catholic, the head of Sant'Egidio, which is a Catholic lay community, which has been involved in conflict resolution for many years, said to me the other day, he said, what is striking today, and Sudan is the place I think where we see it most clearly, is that we used to believe in the values of peace as our preferred option. Stability, peace, dialogue, all that stuff that we've all been busy with for so many years. We've rediscovered the virtues of war as the option of choice. And when we saw Sudan start again between those two generals, it was essentially them deciding, I think I can make a better deal out of a war than I can out of an alliance and an agreement, a dialogue, and eventually, remember, a a government um, 
screwed together between them. And the same has happened in Gaza, and the same, of course, has happened in Ukraine. The, the world now suffers principally, I think, it's not so much a collapse in multilateralism and its values, although that is difficult. It's not so much a collapse in the divinity of the Security Council, although that has been a disappointment. It's worse than that, is that war is not the default option anymore. It's a credible, useful instrument in certain cases, according to certain people. Finally, you mentioned Sudan. Your operations there are underfunded. You've come up with your plans for 2024, your global humanitarian overview. You project that 181 million people in 71 countries will need assistance. It's going to cost $46 billion to pay for it. But if you look at this year, you're not going to get any of that money, or a large part of that money, are you? No. The, 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 what, I, I want to make two points about that, because it's, it's, it's a big deal. We just launched it here in Doha. $46 billion is a lot of money. It's $10 billion less than we asked for this year. So the first thing is that we have cramped our style. We have limited our ambitions, we, the humanitarian agencies in countries, to focus on absolute life-saving activities, the most important ones. So we've reduced the budget in response to the fact that the funding gap is, is widening. But we're still asking for twice what we're get, getting this year. So what does that tell us? That tells us a number of things. Number one, we need to do much more on making money work better. And I think there's two things I'd like to mention there. Number one, use of cash. Use of cash as a, as a humanitarian methodology gives agency to the people it, it is given to, and they spend it always more wisely than we would. Number two, listen to them. Listen to them a lot more. Listen to the communities, because they'll tell you, no, I don't want another tent, thank you. I'd prefer to have a road, whatever. Money better spent. Number three, go for economics. Isn't it interesting that in Afghanistan, one of the things that is more talked about than humanitarian aid at the moment in a place which is so ignored, another one of the places that is ignored, is the economics of Afghanistan that have become an area of possibility. It is the economics of Syria which is driving it into the ground. It is the economics of Myanmar, as well as the, the war, which is driving it towards misery. The humanitarian community next year, 2024, with ambitions as it has, it's not only about linking up with development organizations and making sure that we do not do it through high-level panels in places like New York, but we do it on the ground with the communities sitting together. It's not just that. It's about looking at the economics of how people live and making economics and economic interventions more acceptable politically to donors, more useful and tactical to those who need them. You know, women are four times more productive in Afghanistan when employed than men. So if, you, if you want to help women in Afghanistan, and we all do, of course we want their education, and we, of course we want them to be able to work. But we can also do it through investment in economics. So I want my community to be focused on a partnership with local communities first, and then a partnership with the others, with the economists, with the World Bank, with the private sector, 
with development organizations. Because if we don't change our business model, we're going to have another year of a major gap in which we will be, what, 30% funded? And there's going to come that moment when people will be saying, what happened to the other 70%? What, 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 what happened last year? Are they alive or dead? Or were you fooling us? And we have, because of that kind of question, we've limited, we've focused, we've narrowed our desire down, but we need to supplement that with genuine partnerships, which are not about patronage, and it's not about, I'll hand this on to you later, but we'll work at the same time together. That's what we need to do. Now that means a revolution in the business model of the humanitarian community. And we're trying to do that at a time of, as we've been discussing, some of the greatest and most intractable conflicts. And by the way, climate is going to hit us again, worse next year, even than this year. So Martin Griffiths, Under Secretary General for the United Nations for Humanitarian Affairs, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thanks a lot, James. Very good to see you. Thank you.